0: So, good evening. Welcome here. I'm glad to be here. It's great to be here with you. Uh, I think we've been anticipating this moment for a while, at least on my end, I have been. And uh, so, it's really exciting for us as a family to be here and to be able to just come and open God's Word with you. And, uh, you know, this weekend, I want to take you just into the book of Ephesians. And so, you could open your Bible to the book of Ephesians. This is a wonderful book. It's the only book in the New Testament that I'm aware of, the only epistle that's written to a church without any problems. So many of the epistles are written to churches that are going through a difficulty, but Ephesians is just written with no problems, just designed to help empower the the Christians in Ephesus to live out their salvation. And so Paul wrote this from prison in 61, 62 A.D., he was in his Roman imprisonment, and he, he just wrote to the Ephesians to help them live their lives for the glory of God and to live out the power of God's salvation in their day-to-day lives. And that's really what I want to do this weekend, too, is I just want to help you to live according to God's power, according to your salvation. And the, the way that Paul did this is, is that he explained how salvation works to the Ephesians so that they could understand what it is and then live according to that with their lives. And so he, he wrote this letter to help the Ephesians live for Jesus Christ. And we're not going to cover everything in this epistle by any means this weekend, but I, I just want to take you really into chapter 2 of Ephesians. And and uh, yeah, just, just bring out some of these riches that we have in here. So Paul wanted the Ephesians to live in a way that matched their salvation. God had saved them, and in their salvation, God had richly blessed them, and now he wants them to live according to those blessings. And so Paul's strategy in the book is first to explain some of the riches of salvation, some of the blessings of salvation, and he reasons this way. He thinks, if, if you're gonna walk worthy of your salvation, then you have to know what God did for you. You gotta know the power Of God in that salvation and so in the first three chapters Paul explains salvation and how it works and he prays for the Ephesians that they would understand what God had done for them and he wants the believers to know who they are in Jesus Christ and the only command in the first three chapters of the book comes in chapter 2 and verse 11 and you could look at it there where he tells them to remember And what did he want them to remember in chapter 2, verse 11? Basically, that they were separated from Christ formerly. But before they were saved, they were separate from Christ. They were having no hope, and they were without God in the world. But now, look at verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so the only command there is just to remember that you were once far, but now you've been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so he says, basically, remember your salvation. But then when he gets to the second half of the book, it is full of commands about how to live in this world, how to live as a Christian. And you can see this most clearly in the transition part in chapter 4, And verse 1 so go ahead and and look at chapter 4 and verse 1 he says there therefore I the prisoner of the Lord in, in other words therefore because of all the things about your salvation that I explained in the first three chapters therefore I the prisoner of the Lord implore you I I beg you I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called and so he wants them to walk according to their calling. Calling is just another way of describing salvation. And so remember, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9, Peter says that, uh, God is the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then that's the idea of calling there, that Paul's just saying, I want you, I urge you to walk worthy of your salvation. And so Paul implores the Ephesians to walk worthy of this amazing salvation that he describes in the first three chapters of the book. And again, we're not going to look at all of the, the riches of salvation, but we're just going to focus in and zero in on chapter 2, 1-10, to 10, and, and I want to show you part of what Paul showed them to enable them to live worthy of this great salvation. And so as we look at our, our as we spend the weekend together I'm hoping that it's going to help you appreciate what God has done for you in saving you. Uh, I'm hoping that it's going to cause you to adore him more and worship him greater because of this great salvation. Uh, I'm hoping that it's going to show you what needs to happen to you if you're not saved. And so as we look at this text it should show you what needs to happen if you're not saved and also it should equip you and prepare you to live worthy of that salvation. If you are truly saved. And so again, I'm just super excited for the weekend. And uh I'm excited what God's going to do as we look at this amazing section. And so go ahead, if you're not there already, open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to look at verses 1 to 10 this weekend. And this week, or t- today, tonight, we're going to just focus on verses 1 to 3. And I called this message, Our Dreadful Condition. So let's read the verses Just to get the full context for where we're going this weekend, Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 1, Paul says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the Spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them now, as we kind of begin to to get into this text, I, I just want to kind of share a little principle with you. some sometimes the the best way to make something really pop is to bring out a, a comparison. So by way of comparison, often we can see something a little more clearly. And so when we compare something with its opposite, the the difference is more apparent, and so light is more noticeable when it's placed in the midst of darkness. Strength is most appreciated when we feel our weakness, and and these kinds of contrasts can help us understand both sides of a thing. The, the, the contrast brings out the fullness in each side. And you know, you think about it, how would you even know what light was if there was no such thing as darkness? Now if you go to to buy a a diamond ring at a jewelry store and they want to show you the diamond and you want to see the clarity and the the reflective beauty of the diamond sometimes they'll they'll place that diamond behind a a black velvet backdrop and they'll take this cloth out and they'll show you the diamond because the the blackness and the darkness of the cloth helps bring out the beauty of the diamond and the same principle is true in the spiritual realm. The the sinfulness of sin is most evident when it's compared in the bright holiness of God. Or the the love of God is sweetest when we remember that at the same time He was wrathful with us, He was angry with us because of our sin. And so how amazing is our salvation when we consider all the benefits that we receive in, in light of the fact that we deserve the exact opposite. We deserve to go to hell, and we received eternal joy in the presence of God. And so these kinds of contrasts help us to appreciate both sides for what they really are. And in our passage today, the the Holy Spirit wants us to see how great and how powerfully God worked in our salvation. But in order for us to see the fullness of our salvation, what we needed, we needed to see it in its proper context. And so the Spirit wants to hold up the glory of our salvation so that we can see how great of a thing it is that God has done for us. But in order for us to really see that, in order for us to really understand the power of God that works in our salvation, we, we need to realize how helpless we were, how lost we were before we we're saved. And that's exactly what this passage does. That's exactly how this passage begins. And so in order to grasp the heights of God's saving grace, Paul first focuses on the depths of man's sin. And so this text teaches us about man prior to salvation. We're just going to again focus on verses 1 to 3 this evening. And it shows us who man is before God saves him and brings him to himself. And so if we want to understand salvation, we really need to get the doctrine of man right. If we don't get this right, if we don't get the doctrine of man right, then all our theology of salvation is gonna go astray from there. And so theologically, this is called, the, what this passage teaches is called the depravity of man. And and the sinfulness of man, the lostness of man, the helplessness of man, the depravity of man, again, is a, is a foundation for a right view of salvation. And so again, if we get this right, really almost everything else the Bible teaches about salvation is going to fall into place. But if we get this wrong, all kinds of error and bad teaching can come in. And so what does the Bible teach about our dreadful condition? We're going to see three truths in verses 1 to 3, three truths about our state before God saves us. And so if you're taking notes this morning, this evening, uh, three truths about man before salvation, three truths about man before salvation. And the truth about man, according to God's word, is not at all what the world teaches about man. And really, the, the truth about man isn't comfortable. It's not necessarily encouraging. It's not going to make us feel good tonight. But God's truth is better than the devil's lies. And so the first, you know, well, the first thing we're going to see about man in, the, in our text is that man is dead. You see, our first parents, they rebelled against God and they plunged their children. Adam and Eve plunged their children into this dreadful condition that all of us come into this world in. All of us, when we are born into this world, we are born into this dreadful condition. We are alienated from God. We are separated from God. We, We all come into this world as sinners, sinners by birth, sinners by nature, sinners by choice. And these truths then, as we examine them, are going to help us to rejoice in our salvation and they should cause us to marvel at God's saving grace. And if you're here tonight and you're not saved, this is going to show you exactly what kind of a condition you're in. You're going to see how desperate your condition, how much you need God to save you from it. And so the first truth about man, we see it in verse one. And again, that's number one, man is dead. Look at verse 1 again of that text. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And what Paul's doing here is he's telling the Ephesians what they were like before they were saved. And this is a past tense state. They were dead. They were dead. At the end of chapter 1, Paul had had just finished talking about Jesus Christ. And so at the end of chapter 1, Paul's focus had been on Jesus Christ. Christ, according to verse 20, was raised from the dead. Christ was seated at God's right hand, it says in verse 20. He was seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, chapter 121. And God put all things in subjection under Christ's feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, verse 22. And so, Paul had just been talking about Jesus Christ, and so we were just looking, as you read through the text, we were just looking at Christ, exalted and glorious, victorious, and now Paul turns and he looks at the Ephesians, and he says, and you, and so we go from Christ and his glory and his greatness, and now he turns his attention and his focus and he says, and you were dead. And so from looking at Christ, looking up to Christ, we now look down to the Ephesians before they were saved, and here Paul tells them that they were dead. Now, I, should, I just want to note one more thing about the context as we, before we really dig into this. And, and that is what, what Paul describes here, or what Paul is describing here, is true of everyone before they're saved. There's no exceptions except the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was born into this world by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he is exempt from this sinfulness. But the rest of us were born through Adam, the first man. And so this is true of each and every person who is born into this world. And to see this, we don't have to go very far in our text. Paul says in verse 1, and you, of course, you refers to the Ephesians to whom he's writing. And he continues in verse 2, and he says, in which you formerly walked but then notice in verse 3 he says among them too, among them we too all formerly lived and so he goes from you and now he includes himself and and maybe those he's with and he says and we too all formerly lived this way so we paul and his associates too, we as well lived this way and and not only we too but we too all lived this way and so this is inclusive of all people born of adam and in case that wasn't super clear by now already in in case there was any doubt remaining at the end of verse three paul adds this he says and were and and the idea is there we were we were by nature children of wrath and then he says even as the rest even as the rest of mankind and so again this is inclusive what paul says here is true not just of the ephesians but of every man woman and child Born into this world, no one is excluded. Now, one more thing in the context, just to kind of set this up, and then we'll, we'll really dig into what this text says. But I just want to show you one more thing in the context, and that is that verses one to seven here are one long sentence in the original Greek. In in, in English, they kind of break it up into a couple little sentences because it's just too much for an English sentence, but all of this is one long sentence. And, and Paul does this throughout the book of Ephesians. And and so I just want to kind of show you the main thing Paul is saying in this section, just by kind of bringing this sentence down to its most basic form. The The main verb of this whole section is in verse 5. This is the main action. This is the main thing that Paul is saying. And that's in, in chapter 2, verse 5, uh, right about halfway through that sentence, made us alive made us alive Uh, made alive is the main verb made alive is the main idea the main action that's happening in this sentence and who is doing the action who made alive and the answer to that is in verse four this what they call the subject of the sentence see that they're but god and so god made alive god is the one doing the action god makes somebody alive and so god is the actor and made alive is the action. And who did God make alive? Or, or what is the object of the sentence if you're into grammar? The the answer is us. God made us alive. And, and the us is really the you from our text. So you are the ones that God made alive. And so if we break this sentence down into its simplest form, what it's saying most simply is you, God made alive. Or in better English, we would, we would say it this way, God made you alive. Alive. Everything else in this sentence is just giving more detail to either God or made alive or to you. And, and today we're just focused on the you, the Ephesians, and, and by inclusion, every single person who is born into this world. And so Paul is describing you before salvation. What were you who were made alive like? Well, before salvation, you were Dead. Before salvation you were enslaved and before salvation you were children of wrath. That's just the simply what Paul is saying. Three things about these people and, and that's our outline for today. Man is dead. Man is enslaved. And man is going to hell. And so first... Man is dead. Man is dead. And, and literally it's there. It's you being dead. And the word being there, of course, I'm, I'm reading from the, the New American Standard. You were dead in the New American Standard. The, the, literally though, it's in the Greek. It's you being dead. And being describes the continual ongoing state of everyone before salvation. And, and the state of everyone before salvation there is described as dead. In verse five, we see that God, made us alive even though or even when we were dead. And so deadness is the state that God must overcome in order to make us alive with Christ. In order to save us, God must resurrect us from death. And I don't really need to tell you, I don't think, what it means to be dead. It means to not be alive. Uh, To be dead means to, to, to be alive, rather, means to have the ability to interact with my environment. A dead person has no ability to respond or interact with his environment. They have no ability to function, reason, interact, or in any other way correspond with their surroundings. They're dead. And the Ephesians, though, they weren't physically dead. Paul wasn't writing a letter to people who were physically dead and spiritually and physically resurrected. He's writing a letter to people who were dead in their trespasses and sins. And so they were spiritually dead. They were unresponsive towards god spiritual death is a, a picture of the unbeliever's state before god makes them alive spiritual death is uh, again a picture of the unbeliever's state before god makes them alive now as we think about this the holy spirit could have used anything to describe man throughout scripture there's many description of uh, of unsaved people uh, a dog returning to its vomit a sow washing in the mire, a slave to sin, a child of the devil who does the works of their father the devil, a lover of the world, a practicer of sin. There's many ways that the Bible describes the unsaved people. They're blind or hardened or lost or mockers or fools or scoffers. And so there's many ways to describe man and his sins, but the Holy Spirit in this context chose dead. He could have said You were wounded in your transgressions and sins. You were injured in your transgressions and sins. You were hurt in your transgressions and sins. But no, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And so think about this choice. Could could there have been a, a word that more pictures man as helpless in his condition? When somebody is physically dead, there is no hope of helping them until they die, until that moment when they die, there's always hope that they might recover, that they might get better. If they're sick, maybe they will recover, or maybe there's some medicine that will prove effective, or perhaps a cure can be found. But once the person is dead, the only hope is a miraculous resurrection. You see, it doesn't matter what you do to a dead person or what you do for a dead person, they have no ability to respond whatsoever. There's no hope that that person will come to life of their own volition or of their own power. There is no hope for them. And the same is true of a spiritually dead person. A spiritually dead person can sit under the best preaching of the gospel. They can hear the clearest presentation of the gospel. They can even see the most Compelling evidence, like the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Think of all the Pharisees that saw the resurrection of Jesus but then denied it because they were spiritually blind. They were, they were spiritually dead and so they had no ability to respond. And, and the only hope of such a one is that God raises them to spiritual life. And this really sets our expectations right when we preach the gospel. We are utterly dependent upon God. God must raise the sinner to spiritual life so that they can respond. And so Paul's teaching here in Ephesians 2 has a parallel in the book of Colossians. Colossians 2.13, just listen to this. Paul says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He, that is God, made you alive together with Him, together with Christ, having forgiven us all our transgressions. These texts also just really uh, mirror the teaching of Jesus in the parable of the two sons. Remember the parable of the prodigal sons? The prodigal son represents a, a sinner's conversion and shows how God welcomes a sinner who repents. And uh, in the explanation of that parable, Luke 15.24, the father in the parable explains what happened to the prodigal son. He says this, he says, This son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. Again, Luke fifteen thirty two. but we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. He was lost and has been found. Revelation chapter 3, 1, Jesus says this to the church in Sardis. He says, I know your deeds that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. And this picture of spiritual death is really the best picture of, of man before salvation. Now, we don't have time tonight, but we could look at numerous passages in the Old and New Testament on the depravity of man. And if we did that, you know what we would find? We would find that man is presented as dead. Man is presented as unable to keep the law. Man is unable to contribute anything to his salvation. Man is unable to grasp spiritual truth. And man is unable to respond apart from God's saving grace. Now, on the other side of this, if we looked even deeper into this, we would see that when man is presented as active, man is hostile to God. Man is at enmity with God. Man is opposed to God. And and I, I really find this amazing that when, when we think about man as passive, he is viewed as dead, as unable, as incapable. But when, we, when the Bible presents man as active, he is hostile, contrary, and opposed to God. Now look back at verse 1 of our text, and he says there, "...you were dead in your trespasses..." and sins you see man is dead towards god but he's alive towards sin in this dreadful estate trespasses and sins is the realm in which unsaved man functions he he lives in this sphere of trespasses and sins and note that it's plural trespasses and sins plural because man is dead he lives in a multiplicity of sins against a holy god And together these words, trespasses and sins, indicate conscious and deliberate actions of breaking God's law and failing to meet His holy and righteous standards. And I want you to just see the seriousness of this condition. You see, uh, we not only have committed numerous trespasses and sins against this holy God, but we live in a continual state of trespasses and sins and so it's not that just that we commit sins but we live in this constant state. And so hopefully you can see the difference. I tried to illustrate it like this. You know, imagine if you had a, a nice little farm with vegetables and chickens and pigs and cows and around this farm you built a fence and you put up a sign that says no trespassing. Now, it would be bad, it would be, uh, you wouldn't like it if somebody climbed over your fence, ignored your sign, uprooted your vegetables, spooked your cattle, killed your chickens. That would be bad. But then imagine if that same person moved in into your barn and started living there and was continually doing that day after day after day. That's the state that we are. That's that's how we are in God's universe because this is God's world. And so in God's world, in God's universe, man lives in this state of rebellion against God. And sin is so natural to the unsaved man that he takes little notice. He, he We hardly notice our sins in all the times that we transgress and, and sin against God. But God sees every action. God sees every word. God knows every thought and tests every motive of everyone's heart. And His standard is perfect righteousness. And we fall dreadfully short because we are dead in our trespasses and sins when we come into this world. And so the first truth about man in this dreadful condition is that man is dead. But secondly now, we see number two, that man is enslaved. And I want you to see that in verse 2 and the first part of verse 3. Let's read it again together. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the Spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we're going to stop there for now. At the beginning of verse 2, it says, in which, and that refers back to the trespasses and sins from verse 1. And so, before salvation, the Ephesians walked in their trespasses and sins, and, and in those trespasses and sins, they walked and they lived a certain kind of way. The word there, formally points back to the, the days before they were made alive. So, formerly, before you were made alive, this is how you walked, this is how you lived, and, and there was three things here that are, that we can draw from this text that are, we're keeping men enslaved, that we're keeping men in bondage. And these th- three things work together to keep every man, woman, and child trapped in this dreadful, dreadful estate that we saw in verse one. And the first thing that, that's working there is the world. And so formerly in their trespasses and sins, they walked according to the course of this world. You can see that right there in verse two. According to the course of this world. The, the world here refers to the ideologies, the philosophies, the value systems of the world, the thinking of the world, the standards of this present world. And Satan himself is called the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, again, with a small g, the God of this world. Because Satan is the chief influencer over all the ungodliness of this present age and so the world is society that we live in with all that it treasures and loves and values against god and according to james 4 four, friendship with the world is hostility towards god and so what's happening here is that the unbeliever in dead in his trespasses and sins just goes with the flow of this world system that's contrary to god they love what the world loves and they hate what the world hates they're under the influence of the world and they walk, that is, they live according to its values and its things. And so the world is the first thing that keeps men in bondage. Secondly, we see that the devil is also involved in this thing. The second entity that keeps those dead in trespasses, dead in trespasses and sins enslaved is the devil. And in verse 2, the devil is called the prince of the power of the air. And so note, we walk according to the world, we walk next according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And so the devil, or Satan, is here called the prince of the power of the air, and he rules over the realm of the air. He's prince there, and the the idea of the air is just the space between heaven and earth where evil spirits live. Now, by this point in the book of Ephesians, Paul has already made it super clear that God is the ruler of all the devil's not in control, and just to show you that, look at Ephesians one and verse eleven ephesians one eleven also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, and so here God is called him who works all things after the counsel. Of His will, and so God is the one in control of all things that happen in this world in Ephesians one and verse twenty and twenty one Christ is presented as the one who is raised from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God and note there in verse twenty one he is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come and these entities here the rule and authority and power and dominion refer to spiritual beings in the heavenly places and so christ is above all those god works everything according to his will and christ is also above all of these powers and so christ is above all the spiritual beings that dwell in the heavenly places the devil can't do anything to mess up god's plan god and christ are the ultimate rulers over all and yet at the present time god has allowed satan to operate in the lives of the unbelieving world and so according to our text satan is the prince or the ruler of the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience. And and the best way to understand this is that the sons of disobedience are the unbelieving world and the spirit now working in them refers to the disposition and thinking that is working and influencing them. And so Satan is the prince of the influencing spirit that is now working in the lives of the unsaved world. Maybe you've wondered, how is it uh, that... That the world can turn so quickly to sin. Maybe you don't see that as much in the Crete, but you know, in Edmonton, you just see the world is just going in this sinful direction, and sometimes it just makes no sense at all. Why are they going this way? This makes no sense. It's irrational. It's illogical. The 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 world promotes these ideas, and it just it just doesn't seem to make any sense. And, And the reason that it's so is because there's spiritual forces of wickedness working behind the scenes controlling the way the world thinks, influencing them towards greater and greater expressions of disobedience. One commentator said about this section, he said the world, or it it is no wonder that they're called sons of disobedience, for they follow their commander who is the prototype of disobedience. And so the world is working against men who are dead in their trespasses and sins. The devil is working against men who are dead in their trespasses and sins. And third, and and these things are all keeping man enslaved, is men's own flesh is working against men dead in their trespasses and sins. And so this third entity that we see in this text is the flesh. And we see that in verse 3. In verse 3 it says, "...among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh." Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Now, Paul includes himself here. He adds, he said, instead of saying you, he now turns to we and he includes himself. This is not only true of the Ephesians, but also of Paul before his salvation. They were in bondage and they were enslaved to the lusts of the flesh. Now where it says there at the beginning of verse 3, among them, that refers to the sons of disobedience. And so among the sons of disobedience, we all lived in the lusts of our flesh. Every single one of us, again, either once was or now is in this state. And what is this state? It's called the flesh. The flesh is how the Bible describes unsaved man. And the, the lusts of the flesh are the desires of unsaved man or unregenerate man and so when we were in the flesh we were in bondage to our sinful desires we indulged the desires of the flesh and of the mind and the flesh manifests itself differently in different people one one person might uh, might desire the praise of men another person might be a drunkard one might be uh, an angry person another one another might favor physical pleasure but regardless of how the flesh manifests itself In a particular person, all unbelievers, all unsaved people are captive to their desires. No unregenerate person who's dead in their trespasses and sins desires to deny themselves, pick up their cross, and live for the glory of God and the praise of Jesus Christ. And note especially here where it says in verse 3, And of the mind, even the mind of the unsaved is affected by sin, and that's why sin manifests itself so irrationally in the lives of many unbelievers. The, the thinking process, what, what we value and treasure, what we see is corrupted because we're blind in our state of sin to what is truly good. I want you just to, to turn to a, a parallel passage in Titus chapter 3. So turn with me to Titus chapter 3. And we'll look at verse <clears> three, <throat> Titus three three says, "For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Note that word there, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of our God." Uh, When the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul here says, We were enslaved to various lusts, but God saved us. God saved us. When the kindness of God came, He saved us. Not on the basis of what we did, not on the basis of what Paul did, not on the basis of works, but by the work of the Holy Spirit, by the washing and regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And so the world, the flesh, and the devil are working together to keep man enslaved in his deadness. They they work together to hold us captive. And so we see man here is not only dead, but man in our dreadful condition in which we come into this world is also enslaved and so god must take action or man is going to continue in this dreadful condition and this is so dangerous because unless god intervenes man is going to hell and that's our third point back in ephesians turn back there man is number one man is dead number two man is enslaved number three now man is going to hell look at the last bit of verse three and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Paul is saying in in verse 3, we too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh and we were by nature children of wrath. So we lived in the lusts of our flesh and we were by nature children of wrath. And everything we've seen about unsaved man leads to this, that men are objects of God's holy wrath. You see, God is holy and just. God is righteous. And this is His world. God is the owner of this world. And God will not and God cannot sit bodily by while man continues in trespasses and sins. God must judge because he is righteous and he is holy and God will judge. Now for now, in the time that we live in, there's a delay on God's judgment. And God is delaying his judgment until he saves all of those whom he has chosen. But don't mistake the delay as though God's delay means that He's okay with sin because God is not okay with sin. Unsaved man by his very nature, according to this text, by his very nature is a child of God's wrath. And so who we are by nature is an offense to this holy God. And the just penalty for sins is against an infinitely glorious, infinitely good God is an infinite suffering in hell. And the only escape from this state is through Jesus Christ. The, the only salvation is through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ took on our nature, not the nature of our sin, but He took on our human nature without sin. And He died on the cross to take upon Himself the wrath of God so that we could be saved, so that we could be forgiven, so that God's anger and God's wrath could be appeased through a perfect sacrifice. And Jesus lived a perfect holy life so that through faith in him we could receive a righteous standing before god but we are dead in our sins we are unresponsive to the good news of the gospel and so in our dreadful condition we walk according to the world we walk according to the devil and we walk according to our sinful desires and what we need is a spiritual resurrection what we need was for god to make us alive from the dead and again, dead men don't resurrect themselves. Only God can save us from this dreadful condition. Only God could deliver us from His wrath. Only God could free us from the evil trilogy of the world, the devil, and the flesh. And only God could make us alive with Jesus Christ. Now tomorrow, we're going to look at God's amazing saving grace and, and, and how He makes us alive with Christ and causes us to trust Him. But but we can't wait until tomorrow because some of you might be in this dreadful condition right now. And so if that is you, you are dead to God. You are enslaved to sin and you are headed to hell even right now. And so friend, I would urge you to turn from sin and turn to Jesus Christ, the only hope of salvation. And you might say, but how can I do that if I'm dead? How can I turn to Him if I'm dead? How can I respond if I'm dead? And the answer that I would give is that if you are awakened to your dreadful estate and you are willing to run to Christ and you are willing to turn from the sin that you have loved your whole life up until this point to Christ, it's very likely that God is working in your heart even this moment. That God is working to save you even now. Now, you cannot save yourself But God can save you, and He promises to save everyone who will call on Him through Jesus Christ. And so ask God to save you. Trust in Jesus Christ. Come to Him, and He will receive you with open arms. And if you're here tonight, and you have believed on Christ, and you love Him, if you are spiritually alive tonight, if you can look at your life and say, I am spiritually alive thanks to what God has done then praise God, then then glorify God because He and He alone could save you from such a terrible condition. You were dead and He brought you to life. You were lost and you have been found. You were enslaved and you have been set free by the blood of Christ. You were headed for hell and God turned you around and opened your eyes so that you could see Him and love Him through the Gospel. Man was dead. Man was enslaved. Man was headed for hell. And God has an amazing salvation to deliver us from that dreadful estate. We're going to look at that more in the morning. Let's pray. Father, we just recognize as we come to this text what a dreadful condition we were in. We were hopeless but you are mighty to save. We thank you for your great salvation. We pray for those who are here who aren't saved, that you would awaken them from their dead state and bring them to salvation. And for those of us who have been saved, we thank you for raising us to life, for for delivering us from our blindness, for causing us to respond by grace. We pray you'd help us to understand these things more, even tomorrow, so that we could live in a manner that's worthy of the great salvation that You have given us through Jesus Christ. We ask it in His name. Amen.